Hello, I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. Welcome to this excerpt from our fortnightly Room 106 podcast. In the excerpt, sponsored by the law firm Shoesmiths, we'll be exploring more of the implications of Liz Truss's installation as Prime Minister. To listen to Room 106 regularly, subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Hope you enjoy the excerpt, and thanks for listening. So now I need to find my way back to the corner of Room 106 where comment about political developments is gathered. Usually the opinions seem to just mysteriously accumulate in here, but they're brought here by lawyers, think tanks, professional bodies, and so on. And I'm hoping that I might actually catch one or two of them down here and get a chance to pick their brains. Ah, I'm in luck. It's Ike EJ, Head of Housing, Architecture and Urban Space at the Policy Exchange. Hello. And Chris Rumfit, founder and chief executive of Field Consulting. Hi there. And Karen Howard, partner at our sponsors, Shoesmiths. Hello there. Welcome to Room 106. Uh, have you got a few minutes to discuss the implications of Trust becoming Prime Minister? Of course. Yes. Yeah, we do. Fantastic. In which case, could I ask you to briefly introduce yourselves? My name's Ike EJ, Head of Housing, Architecture and Urban Space at um, Policy Exchange Think Tank. I'm also a practicing architect and for the previous 10 or so years was the architecture editor for two architecture magazines. And uh, obviously my interest is in architecture as a practical exercise, but also as a political policy driven pursuit as well. Many thanks, Ike. Uh, Chris? Hi, Chris Rumfit. I'm the founder and chief executive field consulting. Um, we're political advisors and communications advisors to major developments on a whole host of projects, residential, commercial, mixed use all over the country. My background is in politics. I worked in 10 Downing Street for Tony Blair. And so that whole politics of planning, which as we all know is so difficult, is, is really my area. Great. Thank you. And Karen? Hello. I have been in planning for over 35 years. I started off in local government and um, I now continue my career as a lawyer in planning and regeneration for Shoesmiths. I act for house builders, developers, landlords. I also do work um, against enforcement and look at the politics of any situation, giving time really to the local people that want to complain about development. Fantastic. Many thanks. Okay, well, let's get on and uh, discuss the planning commitments that Liz Truss has made and her team have made and some of the implications. First of all, to look at housing. Truss has has committed to, open quotes, abolish the top-down, Whitehall-inspired, Stalinist housing targets. She told the Daily Express during her leadership campaign, I'll put power back in local councillors' hands who know far better than Whitehall what their communities want. And uh, since he's been appointed, the new levelling up secretary, Simon Clark, told LBC that the government should move away from the top-down housing targets that, he says, poison the relationship between government and local communities, and that he would create some rational incentives to deliver the housing we need where we need it. So the questions I was going to ask you as a group is... How do you think the government will take these commitments forward and what could the implications be? Does this mean an end to government oversight of the numbers of homes a local authority plans for? 
Does it mean that councils will be left to their own devices or does it just mean a tweak to the standard method? And do you have any thoughts on the kind of incentives that uh, Simon Clark might be considering? So, Ike, can I come to you first on, on this? Well, um, the first thing is to voice a little bit of scepticism, I suppose. Um, look, we've been down this road before. Michael Gove, who was the last Secretary of State for um, Housing and Levelling Up, he didn't abandon housing targets, but it was clear that he was very interested in the kind of housing that was created, whether you call it beauty or sustainable communities. He thought that was as important, if not more important, than um, the housing numbers. And simply because we are in a housing crisis, simply because we have a crisis of limited supply, not across the country, but in obviously in, in the southeast and other places, I don't really think it's credible for government to completely abandon its involvement in housing numbers and housing delivery and leave it entirely to local communities. One of the other reasons why I think that that doesn't really work is because housing is one of those things whereby you have a national benefit, but that national benefit might not always be translated into local benefit. To take a kind of I don't know, big infrastructure example, something like HS2, um, you can argue about whether you think it's um, worthwhile or not, but the government very clearly thinks there's a national benefit. But if you've got a train track ramming through your village or beside it, then you might not see the local benefit. And that's often the case with housing. So we do have a housing crisis. We do have an undersupply and we need to increase the numbers of housing built. So I don't think it's feasible for the government, as it says, to completely abandon housing targets or completely leave everything to local authorities, because it may sound good in, in, in terms of a kind of soundbite sound to liberate um, local um, um, planning officers and authorities, but it doesn't work on a national level, and governments have to think of national level. Oh, thank you very much. All right. uh, Chris, any thoughts about what they might actually do uh, if they're getting rid of the so-called Stalinist targets? Yeah, well, first to say, I mean, I almost entirely agree with Ike. I think it's really important to measure comments in by the context in which they're said and in a leadership contest to the Daily Express, you know, all of the bells are ringing for me that this is something we should take with a with a pinch of salt. The emphasis maybe, you know, to make sure no promise Maybe she can abolish Stalinist housing targets. I'm sure no one's in favour of anything that's Stalinist. Um, <laughs> I would share my like, scepticism of how this could be uh, implemented. The standard method has obviously been unpopular, and I suspect this is more about changing how ch- housing targets are arrived at, potentially ending the standard method, rather than the abolition of targets a tool which, as, as Ike said, would be disastrous for housing delivery. And given the government's number one priority is growth, 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 I don't think stymieing housing deliveries um, fits with that. OK. And um, Karen, your thoughts and, and, and any thoughts actually on the kind of incentives that Simon Clark might be considering to help? Well, it's difficult. I agree with both um, the comments that have been made so far. I think we do have a crisis in this country and I think that housing needs to be delivered faster. I act for major house builders that have to go through so many hoops from local authorities before they get even to a planning permission. And there's lots of, if you like, tricks along the way that you have to deal with, including Section 106 agreements, SEAL, etc. I do think that the government needs to think a bit more about local community needs and they need to look at, I agree with Ike, on the type of housing that's being provided. And I do think you don't necessarily need to have four bedroom houses every 
everywhere, which is what has been required in some of our instances. So I do think that the target overall is good to have because everyone's got to aim for something. But I would just encourage anything like funding or, you know, being able to incentivize by loans and, you know, more public investment um, in order to speed everything up. You know, maybe flexibility on capital receipts, how councils use their money. I'm old enough to remember council housing. That wasn't such a bad thing, you know, depending on the type of housing that you need and you require. People just need houses. I did think it was useful what Liz Truss said about um, rental levels. She was saying if you use people's rent, an example of them being able to afford a mortgage might help. But I'd, I'm not quite sure what she was thinking in terms of translating that to um, the mortgage companies that would actually be lending the money. OK, then a couple of other things she said related to housing that I'll just quickly um, read out and, and ask you maybe if everybody can just very briefly comment on these. She said during her campaign that in cities we should be building up more and making more of the space we have. And then on rural development, she said she was a supporter of allowing incremental expansion of villages rather than just these massive targets that land on the back of local councils. Any thoughts on those comments and um, what they might mean in terms of what Truss's government does going forward? On the urban point, I mean... I think most people would agree that urban densification from a sustainability point of view, and it's generally more acceptable there, is is definitely a good thing. Politically, the Conservatives don't really control very many city centres, so it's also a political pathway of least resistance. There is a challenge, though, in terms of how much difference that really makes to overall housing delivery nationally. And obviously the fact that, you know, by far and away, the biggest urban environment in the UK, London, is, is under control of a Labour mayor and with a London plan in place, et cetera, et cetera. Clearly, through national policy, there's stuff they can do to, to influence that. But none of those are quick levers to pull. I think the challenge also is the environmental challenge, because when you look at tall buildings and you look at all the environmental impact assessments around that, it's not always easy just to make things taller, bigger. They have an effect on the environment. And I think that is something that needs to be looked at as well. I agree with both those positions. I'd add the caveat, though. Yeah, while I completely agree that densification is the way forward, I'm not sure if that's what Liz Truss means when she says building up. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. But if she thinks that loads more tall buildings scattered across the country is going to solve the housing crisis, if I'm taking building up as literally more stories of buildings, and I don't think that's going to work. London's had huge experience with tall buildings over the past 10 years. We still have a housing crisis. We still have far lower densities than cities like Paris and Barcelona. We have to get intelligent about what delivering density means and understand that it's not just about plonking tall buildings everywhere. It's understanding urban grain, responding to urban grain in a way that maximises the delivery of housing. And I think that rarely happens. Okay, so one thing that caused a lot of interest was Liz Truss's comments at her first PMQs when she said she was expecting her housing secretary to look into curtailing the power of the planning inspectorate, saying it's too easy for the body to override local authorities. It might seem that this is what this is saying is she's going to make it harder for PINs to enforce national government policy on local authorities, which 
to me doesn't seem to make sense. But Karen, can you make sense of what the government might be thinking of in terms of how it might sort of adjust that relationship between local authorities and the inspectorate? I was puzzled when I first saw the comment, but I think that what Liz Truss is referring to is local plan making and making sure that local plans don't fail on the basis of soundness when there are certain areas that could be worked on and worked through and to make sure that PINs are very sort of informed about where they need to require more evidence. And I do think it is about maybe the government speaking to PINs more and giving more guidance to their inspectors on local plan making. Because my experience of, of working in the local plan system is a lot of local authorities will work very hard to get their plans in place, but then they find themselves derailed by Um, questions from PINs. So I think there has to be much more working together. I think that's what Liz Truss is talking about. I don't think it's making it harder for PINs. I, I think what she's trying to say is that more proactive work needs to happen so that PINs guide local authorities through the local plan system. And I would use Brentwood as an example of a a local plan that the inquiry, the inspectors were very good there. So I can't imagine that she's talking for the whole of PINs. Okay. What about the decision-making side? Uh, If part of this is about um, adjusting the relationship, how that works when local plans are being examined, do you think part of it is also about making inspectors less likely to overturn council refusals of schemes? I think I'm I'm sort of... We're sure to hear Cowan's optimistic um, interpretation of it. My, my, my view is it, I, I wouldn't read too much into those comments at PMQs. It felt a little like, you know, uh, a prime minister literally one day into the job giving a, a very long-standing backbencher, I think the longest-standing conservative backbencher, the answer he wanted to hear. I, I, I'm not sure in terms of translation into policy, we'll see we'll see that much on this uh, area. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with both. In terms of Karen, I, I shared Karen's puzzlement about how exactly watering down the backstop, if you like, the backstop enforcer of national planning policy works to having a credible national planning policy, to be honest. I can't see how that can work. And I also agree with Chris that it probably was more political expedience than a thought-out policy to kind of strip pins of their power. But but I do find it interesting. Pins are almost, they symbolise the conflict between kind of national planning policy and local planning reality. And um, it's not the first time there's been friction between pins and um, local government and central government. And I do think, hopefully along the lines Karen suggests, that there is room to rationalise a relationship, but not, I think, in the way Liz Truss implied of literally stripping pigs of their power or or dramatically reducing it. I, I don't think that's what's on the cards, hopefully. Let's move on to opportunity zones, which are one of Liz Truss's sort of big ideas that she um, talked up during her campaign. In a Telegraph column, she said, at the heart of my vision for levelling up, We will work with local communities to identify sites ripe for transformation across the country through lower taxes, reduced planning restrictions and red tape. These zones will open the floodgates to new waves of investment. They will become new hubs for innovation and enterprise in the spirit of historic towns like Bourneville and Saltaire. How significant do you think this sort of policy idea is? I think it's a good idea. 
And that's the first thing I'd say. I think I do share Chrissy's cynical sort of approach to some of the ideas that have been um, put forward. So if you look at Bourneville and Saltaire, they, they've stood the test of the time and they are kind of, you know, dreamland places that, that people talk about. I think that you can create local development orders in places where, you, where it's a good area to regenerate. That power exists already. And I do think that that would really reduce the red tape because obviously planning decisions are then made in accordance with the order, which means you don't have to go through the rigmarole of all the, the usual sort of planning application process. I do endorse the idea, but just how it will work in practice, because it does come down to, again, local authorities deciding whether they want to put forward that development order within a local plan process. So it's not a magic fix it overnight. It's a good idea, but it still has a way to go. Okay. Chris and Ike, any thoughts on this one? Guilty of name dropping. I had a conversation with Liz Truss a couple of years ago about uh, free ports, and she was a huge enthusiast for those, continues to be. And they've progressed. I think she'll probably put a bit more oomph into the development of those. And perhaps what we're looking at here is something of that same sort of agenda, but away from the ports, as it were. Do you think places are going to want to have these zones, Ike? Yes, to a degree. Yes, I think they will do. Um, as Karen says, I think it's, it's based on sound planning. They're good ideas. Historically, if we look at, say, the Isle of Dogs in London, um, to a degree, the Olympic Park as well, I believe, after, uh, after the Olympic Games, that development, and Albert Dock 2 in Liverpool, these are all good examples of that principle of opportunity zoning leading to good growth and good development. But um, I, I also do share um, a little, I mean, a lot of these mechanisms exist already. So that they are there. It's the way or the frequency with which they're applied, which maybe needs to be looked at. And the final thing, very quickly, I do find this subject interesting because Generic's abandoned planning reforms, a lot of them revolved around this principle of various zoning, almost a US idea of identifying certain areas for high development, other areas for low development. And basically, they were all killed off by um, the Amish by-election, essentially, because people thought politically it was too much of a, of a hot potato. So I'm interested that this is a potential reanimation of those ideas, but in the more kind of friendly language of enterprise zones and opportunity areas, but essentially is a move towards a more zoning approach to planning in the US style, as opposed to our more traditional empirical approach. And I find that interesting. Thanks, Ike. Thanks very much. Next is energy and infrastructure. And uh, Trust said at a hustings, our fields should be filled with our fantastic produce, whether it's the great livestock, the great arable farms, it shouldn't be full of solar panels, and I will change the rules to make sure we're using our high-value agricultural land for farming. She's also told MPs since becoming Prime Minister that the moratorium on fracking would be lifted where there is local support for it. She says we will make sure we exploit all the gas in the North Sea. And then on an infrastructure front, she has said we will build the Northern Powerhouse Rail. So, Chris, can I ask you for your thoughts on those sort of commitments that she's made? Yeah, energy and infrastructure is an area where I've done lots of work over the years. And I think it's a huge opportunity for her government. Growth, growth, growth is the mantra. We're going to hear a lot from that from Kwasi Kwarteng in the forthcoming mini budget. And there's a national consensus, I think, about the need for um, a much greater expansion of domestic energy generation. I take comments like the ones about solar panels with a pinch of salt. I think that's leadership contest 
uh, talk. But I think the other initiatives and really accelerating and putting support behind the building of energy infrastructure, transport infrastructure, they're classic things you do in an economic downturn anyway, which we are, are coming into. The problem they always have is they're perceived as important but not urgent. And I think now we recognise that they are urgent. And I think that's why the circumstances for really um, uh, accelerating, particularly on the energy generation side, getting things going is um, the, the circumstances are coming together. Fracking, I think the key words are where there is local support for it. There may be national policy support, but the number of locations in which there's local support for it, I suspect is relatively few. Yeah, I think the key word, Chris, local support, I, I don't know many people that support it. And Keir Starmer was very clear about the fact that there just isn't enough data and it would take far too long for it to make the changes that I think Liz Trust thinks are going to happen in terms of the overall energy requirements. I think that's a reason why fracking won't necessarily come back quickly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've got just two strap lines, local support as well. Um, I think that's, that's crucial. But also I'd say fabric first too, in terms of new housing built. I think it's something like, I think 80% of the housing we're going to have in 2050 is already here. So we really need to get intelligent about how we retrofit existing housing and ensure that new housing is as efficient, energy efficient as possible when it goes onto the market. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Ike. And our final topic, nutrient neutrality, the, the issue of development being stopped because of the impact it would have in terms of polluting protected watercourses with unwanted nutrients. And during the leadership campaign, a, a spokeswoman for the Trust campaign told Planning that we would remove Brussels red tape, such as nutrient neutrality, that has stalled housing projects without delivering on what it is designed to address. So, Karen, do you think the government will prioritise taking that promise forward? And, and if so, how do you think they'll do it? Well, I think there's a lot of shouting about it at the moment. Obviously, I act for housing developers and I'm very aware of the local areas, the 74 areas where this has become such a problem at all sort of stages of the planning process. Even sites that have been developed already are being stalled. So I'm a real advocate for it. The trouble is, is that the Brexit provisions, there will need to be some primary legislation done to bring that into line with domestic policy. So that can take some time. But I think that proactively, the government can do a lot more with Natural England in terms of what the overall approach would be to try and, and just put pressure on what would be a strategic solution. So some authorities are working very well, sort of East Anglia trying to come up with solutions. And I just think more work needs to be done on that in order to um, try and get things moving. Because it is, you know, we, we talked about housing at the beginning. This is fundamental to delivery. And I think the government need to act quickly. I think they do need to give some guidance on the Brexit application of the Habitats regs. There's a lot to be done. And to be honest with you, if it is done quickly, that would solve at least some of the housing crisis. Just to say that the politics of it isn't completely straightforward, though. Obviously, massive public attention on water quality issues at the moment. And what they'll be worried about is, you know, Lib Dems on their flank championing water quality issues, aligning it to what can be a fairly popular and populist NIMBY agenda. And the politics is not black and white on this one. 
No, in the environment, you know, the lobbying groups on the environment, I, I'm very aware that um, it's it's a big challenge. So whilst I'm I'm doing my let's be you know positive about this, I agree with you, Chris. It's certainly not straightforward. Yeah, I would just add, I'd agree with all of that. And for me, what's interesting about this, I think it's symptomatic of what we're going to be seeing a lot more of in this and future governments. And that's the clash between environmental requirements and, if you like, political reality. I mean, one of the best ways to um, achieve net zero would be to not build any housing because housing, building housing causes a huge amount of carbon emissions. But we don't do, we're not going to do that, obviously, because we need housing. So there's going to have to be a balance between these things, which is going to take a very clever and diplomatic government to find. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. I'm going to have to leave you to deposit your uh, your contributions to the uh, comment on the on the trust premiership in room 106. But I hope to see you here again shortly. And uh, thank you very much for your contributions. Cheers. You. Thank you. And uh, thanks again to Shoe Smiths for their uh, sponsorship of that section. <laughs>